0: In about 258 early church days, a conflict arose between two schools of thought within the church. Cyprian, the bishop of the church in North Africa, and Novation, the bishop of the church in Rome, had a difference of opinion, interpretation. The bishop of the church in Rome, Novation, believed that the church... Uh, should not forgive those who lapsed uh, into any sin, who slipped, who compromised, who did not live up to the standards of the church, did not maintain uh, the standards of the church, that they were unforgivable. In effect, they were excommunicated. Cyprian, the bishop of the church in North Africa, disagreed. And the basis of his argument was the experience of Simon Peter, who had a number of uh, noticeable failures uh, in his life, but was forgiven and restored and used by God in the life of the church in an incomparable way. Well, unfortunately, those tendencies. Uh, continue to even to today. Uh, There are those uh, churches and it is their decision to make. It is up to them to decide. Uh, It is not for me to tell them uh, what uh, to believe or what to practice. But there are those churches that say if certain things have happened in your life uh, you are no longer considered in fellowship with this church. Some churches actually do dismiss people uh, because uh, of uh, their behavior. Uh, others may not go to the point of officially dismissing them. They will just isolate them with the cold shoulder. Uh, or they will not allow them to be involved in any organizational life in, in the church. Now there are many, many people in this church, as there are many people in America, who are divorced. That is a sad and tragic situation. I regret it any time, even though some sometimes circumstances are such that there's no other uh, reasonable solution. When you're dealing with abuse, when you're dealing with personal abuse or verbal abuse or child abuse, uh, alcohol, drug abuse, uh, all kinds of things can happen. Relationships can die. Uh, we don't come along to, to judge, but uh, there are some who do, and there are churches that do not. Uh, allow people who have been divorced to have any place of leadership uh, in the life of the church. So they're not officially excommunicated. They're just sort of uh, subtly excommunicated. There are those who think, well, that uh, may be the unpardonable sin. Uh, Without spending a lot of time on it, let me just say this. There's only one unpardonable sin There's only one unpardonable sin and that is to reject the one who came to pardon us of our sin. So the unpardonable sin is not something God does to us. It is something we do to ourselves by not accepting the gift of forgiveness, the gift of pardon. The unpardonable sin, as horrible as some sins are, as devastating and destructive and painful as they are, to people's lives and often to the most innocent of all, to children's lives. But the unpardonable sin is the sin of rejecting Jesus Christ as the one who pardons us of our sin. Other sins are serious. I am not in any way minimizing the serious consequences in our lives and the lives of those around us when we violate what we know to be the will and way of God uh, in our lives. But there are churches who will not allow someone who has been divorced... Uh, to teach a Sunday school class. There are churches like that. Uh, Baptist churches I'm talking about. I'm not talking about others. I'm talking about our crowd. Baptist churches that say if a person is divorced, uh, they're not allowed to uh, teach a Sunday school class. There, there are other parachurch groups, Christian groups that say uh, if a person is divorced, they cannot, uh, they cannot teach. That's unfortunate, I think. I think it's un- very unfortunate because in a way, to me, it seems so illogical and so contradictory. It's, here's this woman living in Samaria who's been married five times and is now living with a man that she's not married to. And she goes out to the well in the middle of the day to get some water. Jesus is there and she has a conversation with Jesus. One of the longest recorded conversations in the New Testament and her whole life is changed. And she rushes back into town and tells everybody about Jesus. And the whole town comes out and meets him and accepts him. And, him and, and then just appeals to him, pleads to Jesus to stay with him for a couple of days. Here is the woman at the well bringing a whole city to Christ. And yet if she were in some Baptist churches, she wouldn't be allowed to teach a Sunday school class. That's incomprehensible to me simply incomprehensible um, there are those who who uh, not only don't think divorced men or women generally women mainly the focus of it uh, that they should not uh, that they should not only not women should not only, if they're divorced, not teach. There's some churches in this city, Baptist churches that don't believe a woman ought to speak from the pulpit. And that there are some Baptist churches that believe that a woman ought to speak only under the authority of her husband. In other words, there are Baptist churches that would not allow a woman to stand up in the pulpit and give her testimony. Testimony. That means that if she were to come back in person, the mother of Jesus would not be allowed in some Baptist churches to stand up and give her testimony. I can't, that's incomprehensible to me. I, I've kind of come to the conclusion that, really, in the minds of some people, the unpardonable sin is just being a woman. <laughs> it, Cyprian was, was defending people who, who make mistakes and the divorce is not always a mistake. Sometimes it's a solution to a mistake. And all that is a personal thing and each one of them is separate and apart from the other and cannot be and should not be ever dealt with categorically. The point is that all of us at some time along the way in all probability have slipped or compromised, if not in action, in attitude, If not in something we do, in something we've thought. And Cyprian was right to remind the bishop in Rome that all of us can come back and use Simon Peter as an example. Now, I'm so glad that Simon Peter's story is in the Bible and all of us identify with him. Some people have called him the American disciple. He's the patron saint of all of those who when they don't know what to say, say it. Uh, He was very impetuous. He was very energetic. He was spontaneous. Uh, he, he was an effervescent kind of individual. Uh, the story of his following the Lord, so marvelous. Uh, I'll read, uh, just uh, refer to the fourth or the fifth chapter of the gospel of Luke. They'd been fishing uh, all night and they, they came in and the boats were there and Jesus wanted to speak to the crowd. And so he asked Simon Peter if he wanted to borrow his boat and they pushed out from the shore and Jesus preached And then says, when he finished teaching, he said to Simon, push out into deep water and let your nets out for a catch. Simon said, Master, we've been fishing hard all night and haven't caught even a minnow. But if you say so, I'll let out the nets. It was no sooner said than done, a huge haul of fish straining the nets to their capacity, so much so that they called the other boat to come out, James and John, who were co-workers with him, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, uh, said, get the boat, fellas, come out here. And they filled both boats with fish, so much so that the boats nearly sank. And when that happens, Simon Peter, when he saw it, fell on his knees before Jesus. Here he is, it's, it's spontaneous, man. He fell on his knees before Jesus. He said, master, leave, just Leave. I am a sinner and I can't handle this. It, this is just too much for me. Just overwhelmed him. It was the same with James and John, Zebedee's sons, who were co workers with Simon. And then Jesus said to Simon, Listen to this. Well, wouldn't you love to have heard the sound of his voice? He said, Simon, there's nothing to fear. Let him say that to you today. There's nothing to fear. From now on, you will be fishing for men and women. They pulled their boats up on the beach, left them, nets and all, and followed Jesus. We have a tendency when we read the scripture not to fill in some of the blanks with our imagination. Nearly all of these disciples were probably married because it was typical for a Jewish boy to be married by the time he was 19 or 20 years of age, and girls even younger. So, in all probability, all of the disciples were married. Uh, Most of them, at least, James and John, the youngest, might not have been, uh, and they probably had children. And uh, in my imagination, in fact, I'm going to call my friend Jeanette Cliff George over in Houston and tell her the idea I have about after Simon Peter pulled those boats up there in their nets and Simon Peter went home and he walked in and he said to his wife uh, Sarah I don't know that, what her name was it was some Jewish name Sarah Sarah um, I've got something to talk to you about what is it Simon um I've sold the boats and the nets. I'm quitting the fishing business. You, what? You are you're quitting the business? How are we going to eat? How are we going to buy clothes for the kids to go to school? Uh, their sandals are worn out now. Why are you doing this? Well, I ran into this man. His name is Jesus. And he said, he'd make me more than I am. And I want to be more than I am. You mean, you, you, don't, you hardly know this guy. And you're going to just walk away from all of this? Well, he told me not to be afraid. And she said, well, I am. And Simon Peter's mother-in-law lived in the house with them. because Jesus later healed her. And I can hear Simon Peter's mother-in-law just in my imagination saying, Sarah, I told you you ought not to marry this man. (laughs) I could have predicted this long ago. If you'd have listened to me, this would never have happened. I told you he was irresponsible and impetuous and he'd go off doing crazy things like this. I told you. Simon kept shaking his head saying, well, I'm going. Well, he went. He had a long way to go because he made some mistakes along the way like we all do after we pulled our boats up and said, I'm gonna follow Jesus. We have so much to learn about him, still do have so much to learn about him. Um, he made four, there were four uh, critical moments in his life. There were, there were a number, and, but I wanna mention just quickly four. One was at Caesarea Philippi when Jesus said, I'm going to go down to Jerusalem and die and suffer many things of the chief priests and elders and scribes and be killed, be raised again the third day. Then Peter took him and began to rebuke him saying, Lord, that's not to to be. You are not going to do that. Now, I, I believe Simon Peter, I don't believe he was at that point consciously trying to run Jesus' business But I believe he was saying this. He said, look, you've meant so much to me. Man, if you die, what's left? If you go down there and get killed, I don't want to go back to those old boats. I mean, this has been a fantastic experience. Don't do it. And Jesus had to speak to him pretty severely. And he kind of... Shook Simon Peter and knocked him back on his heels. He realized he was intruding upon a business that was beyond his comprehension. So he kept following along. I imagine he's kind of kicking his sandals in the sand, walking along behind the rest of the disciples, feeling pretty low. Then they got down to the Mount of Transfiguration and Jesus took Peter, James and John with him up to the top of the mountain. And there Jesus met with Moses and Elijah and he was covered with all the Shekinah glory of God. And they saw him as a bright light and Simon Peter said, oh, let's just stay here. This is just wonderful. Let's build three tabernacles. One for Jesus, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And let's just stay here. Let's stay away from all of the rabble down below. Let's stay away from all of the troubles. Let's stay away from all the cares. Let's just isolate ourselves out here on this mountain top. And every day we'll just sing and pray and everything will be wonderful. That sort of monastic approach a perpetual monastic approach to living that will escape All of the vicissitudes of life by getting on some idealistic mountaintop. And God himself had to speak up to interrupt the conversation. God said, this is my son. Listen to him. Simon, you're talking when you ought to be listening. Simon, listen to him. We're going to go down off this mountain and down at the bottom of this hill. We're going to run into a demon-possessed boy. And they're all out there everywhere. People whose hearts are broken and whose lives are being disrupted. You're going to come off the mountain. You need mountaintop times, but you need to get back down into the valley. Simon Peter, that's where the needs are. Down there where people are hurting and crying for help. He learned another another lesson. Third lesson in Simon Peter's life. Critical time. They'd had the Lord's Supper, the Passover, an institute of the Lord's Supper had gone to Gethsemane. You know the story. Jesus had asked the disciples to pray for him, took Peter, James and John a little further and said, you fellows stay here and pray for me. And Jesus went further and prayed. They went to sleep. Jesus came back and woke them up and they went to sleep again. Finally, they came to arrest Jesus. And Simon Peter is in, in, in his surprise and frustration and anger when he awakened and saw them standing around there arresting the most important person in his life. He reached and pulled out the sword and he was going to kill Malthus, the servant of the high priest. And that sword flashed in the torchlight and Malthus saw it just in time to duck to the side and he cut off his ear. But I can guarantee you Simon Peter wasn't shooting at his ear. He was going to hit him right between the eyes. And Jesus said, put that sword up. Put it up. The kingdom of God is not going to come by force. Too bad the Crusaders didn't read that passage. Put that sword up. You live by it, you die by it. Put it up. America maybe could take some lessons there about violence. The kingdom of God does not come by force another lesson. So once again, Simon Peter kind of backed off. But then I saw G- he saw Jesus arrested and he followed him. And you know the story when they got down there to the house of Caiaphas, the high priest. They took Jesus inside for this rigged up trial that they were putting him through. And Simon Peter was standing outside there. It gets cool in Jerusalem at night. And he was standing there around the fire warming his hands and a young woman came up and said, i mm-hmm. uh-huh. I recognize you. You're one of his followers, aren't you? He said, no, you got me wrong, young lady. You don't know what you're talking about. I don't know him. He kind of moved over to another fire and came a second time. You're a Galilean. I can tell you the way you talk. You, you're a follower of this Jesus. No, I told you. I told you that I don't know him. I'm just cold. Moved again came a third time The third time he punctuated it by cursing I don't know what he said and I'm not going to try to imagine what he said but he was a sailor <laughs> and so he had some I'm sure very descriptive language to use um, I've been around sailors and in fact, as most of you know, I was in the Marine Corps and, and one of the things we were taught at boot camp. Now, a lot of you don't know this unless you were in the Marine Corps and I'm kind of letting out a, a, a trade secret here. Only the people that are in the Corps really know this, but I think you, you'd be interested in it. One of the things they taught us at Paris Island was how to help improve the English vocabulary of men in the Navy That's right. They said they don't know how to use proper speech. And so one of the things we did was how we could delicately teach men in the Navy to use something more than four letter words in their vocabulary. Aren't you proud of the Marines for doing that? (laughs) You didn't get taught, huh? (laughs) Well, anyway, Simon Peter cursed after he cursed Uh, you've noticed that they no longer accused him of being a follower uh, of Jesus. And when Jesus walked out of the house of Caiaphas, on the way to the home of Pilate or the palace of Pilate, where the trial would continue, Simon Peter was there and Jesus walked by and their eyes met. Now I cannot imagine what that must have been like. But their eyes met. And the Bible says that Simon Peter went out and wept bitterly. Some of us have had that experience. Simon thought he was was through. He'd failed time after time. He'd gotten it wrong. And he felt like he was relegated to the back row. Maybe he'd get to heaven, but he wasn't going to be in the inner circle anymore. He wasn't going to be close to Jesus anymore. So he said to the disciples I'm going fishing. I'm going fishing. He doesn't need me anymore. And he went back to Galilee. And because of his powerful personality and his influence, a number went with him and went back and pulled the old boats out, worked on them because they hadn't been used for three years, and mended the nets that needed a lot of work because they'd not been used for three years. He's back where he started. Excommunicated. They went fishing early in the morning. or Went at night and fished all night. And it was early in the morning. And some of you have been at Galilee early in the morning. And you know that when the sun comes up. It's always a haze over the Sea of Galilee. It's foggy. You can't see very clearly. They were fishing out there. And suddenly this person appears on the beach. And he yells out there about a hundred yards out. Have you caught anything? And I can imagine Simon kind of grumbling. Who is this guy? Because if we've caught anything, if we've caught, if we'd caught anything, we would tell him. Never ask a fisherman if he's caught anything. If he's caught something, he'll tell you. In fact, lie about it a little bit. But, uh, (laughs) If, if he hadn't caught anything, he didn't want to be reminded. I said, No, we fished all night, haven't caught anything. And the man on the shore said, uh, Throw your net on the other side of the boat. I thought, Why not? Fishermen will try anything. Threw the net on the other side of the boat. They caught such a net full of fish, fish they couldn't pull it aboard and the perceptive sensitive john said to simon simon it's the master simon peter jumped overboard and swam ashore the rest of them pulled the fish in they came i just can't imagine what happened when simon peter came walking up out of that water dripping wet cold Jesus had started a little fire and was cooking some fish. I don't believe a single word passed between them. I believe Jesus just kept working on the fire and the fish, and you know, the other disciples got there. and you read about it in the 21st chapter of John. The only record of the conversation was not until after they'd eaten, after breakfast. Jesus said to Simon, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? These what? I think he's talking about the fish. More than these fish? Yes, master, you know I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. He then asked a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, master, you, you know I love you. Jesus said, shepherd, pastor, comfort, care for my sheep. Then he said it a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was upset being asked the third time, Do you love me? So he answered, Master, you know everything. You know every time I put my foot in my mouth, you know every time I've made a mistake, you know everything. I've got nothing to hide, no excuses to make. You know everything. You've got to know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Now, something very important to say in the next few moments. Simon Peter's restoration, Simon Peter's basis of apostleship was based upon an answer to one question. Jesus did not ask Simon, do you promise to not curse anymore? Do you promise to not fight anymore? Do you promise not to try to tell God how to run his business? Didn't ask him any of that. Do you love me? Simon Peter's apostleship, his life, his relationship? like yours and mine, is based upon an affirmative answer to one question. Do you love me? Well, if you do, do something. Love does not exist in abstract. Love is not a feeling. Love is something you do. Love is a verb. That is why the church, the body of Christ, the followers of the Lord take seriously Jesus when he says, Feed my lambs. Well, a lot of little lambs are less than. 50 feet away from us being fed your children, your grandchildren being cared for, being taught, being loved. The church is to feed the little ones, feed them spiritually, feed them intellectually, feed them emotionally, feed them physically. We're to care for the little ones, the least of these. We're his body. And we say we love him. Then let's do something for children. Did you see the paper this morning? I briefly saw the headline. 12 million children in America have no health insurance in this country that professes to be Christian. Feed my lambs. Take care of the little one. If the church doesn't do it, who's gonna do it? Who's gonna do it? Who should do it? The church should do it. Christ's people should do it. Shepherd my sheep. Well, I was in two homes this week as I've already alluded to where sorrow has come, but I wasn't alone there. My goodness, not only was the Lord there, But there are people from this church and Sunday school class shepherding, comforting. And I don't know how many times in the years I've been there. I've been with people through dark times like you have. Gone through it with many of you in this room. And how many times have we agreed, what do people do who don't have the Lord when death comes? We're here to shepherd a hurting world. People that are frightened, people that are dying. People that are sick, if the church doesn't do it, who's going to do it? If we don't do it, who will do it? Jesus said, you do it. Feed my sheep. Feed them intellectually. Feed them emotionally. Feed them physically. Feed them spiritually. Feed every aspect of their life. Feed them. Feed my sheep. Shepherd my sheep. And feed my lambs. Jesus said. I lay down my life. He lays down his life. For the sheep. He the good shepherd. And he says. My command. Is this. Love each other. As I have loved you. Greater love. Hath no man than this, than that he lay down his life for his friends. John 15. We say we love Jesus. Do we translate that into action? Do we? Do we give our money? Do we give our time? Do we give our prayers? Do we give our energy? Or are we just spectators, recipients, not givers? And come to church and saying, My Jesus, I love thee. Well, then, do something. Feed, shepherd, comfort. Encourage. Witness. This is Memorial Day weekend, as you know. And I got to thinking about it and I wonder, looking at our Vision 2000 and what we're doing and endeavoring to do and to give for the cause of Christ in the world. you want a report, and I need to give you a report, and then I have a closing word to share with you about uh, vision two thousand and those of you who are guests i'm not you're not uh, this is not you're glad i 'm glad for you to listen to this, but you 're not to be a part of this i'm talking to members of this church, all of whom have a, profess to be lovers of Jesus. Uh, we have given in terms of commitments over three years. Um, over the next three years four, So far $4,334,328 uh, Our goal is $6.8 million. That's what we voted to do That's what we agreed to do After years of discussion and prayer Now that $4,334,328 Has been given By 559 families There are 4,200 families in our church I wonder how well General Eisenhower would have done on D-Day in Normandy if two-thirds of the troops had said, we decided not to go. What would have happened? I broke it down into something that I could kind of get my handle on a little better. Just take a thousand of those thousands that are not involved uh, just take 1,000 of the members of our church would you give a soft drink a day to Jesus every day for three years if Jesus was thirsty and wanted a Coke or Dr. Pepper or Sprite or something Would you? would you spend a dollar on Jesus every day for three years well If a thousand families in this church gave Jesus a dollar a day for three years that would total 4.5 million dollars. You know what we lack? It's not money. It's love and commitment. The greatest need, in the life of the American church today is commitment. About a year ago, I spoke down at Harlingen, in Harlingen, Texas, for a festival of faith. And uh, I went out to the Marine Military Academy down there. And uh, met with the commandant and spoke, met with a lot of the students and and the Marine Military Academy was, was founded by a fellow by the name of Bill Gary that I was in the Marine Corps with. Well, many of you know, the, probably the greatest picture, at least one of the greatest pictures ever taken of a wartime event was the raising of the flag on Iwo Jima. That picture there, which all of you can probably see because it is so large. Those of you in the choir, everybody has seen it. Maybe many of you have seen the monument uh, in Arlington Cemetery uh, in Washington. Iwo Jima was the 19 February dash 26 March 1945 and they're raising that flag on the top of Mount, Mount Suribachi on Iwo Jima. Uh, there's an exact duplicate of that statue. This picture was turned into a statue as you know. There's an exact duplicate of that statue down in Harlingen. And uh I went by to look at it. It's very imposing. It's very impressive. And there are those men raising that flag. One of the interesting things, if you're ever in Harlingen, I want you to go see it. Because at the base of this statue is a grave. A grave is at the base of the statue. And the, it is the grave of a young man named Harlan Bloch. Harlan Block from Westlaco, Texas. And if you want to meet Harlan Block through this picture, he's right there on the left with his hand just turning loose of the flag. He got killed a few days later. And you and I are enjoying the freedoms and the liberties and the blessings that come with that gift of sacrifice because of the commitment of men like Harlan Block and millions of of others. And all of us need to be reminded of that. And you young people need to know that you have the blessings you have and are able to go to school and able to drive cars, and able to wear nice clothes, and able to have a promising future because we had people who didn't cop out at a time of need. I wonder what would have happened at Iwo Jima if two-thirds of those men, all volunteers... No one was drafted into the Marine Corps. If two-thirds of those men had suddenly volunteered out and said, we're not going to land. Well, if two-thirds of them had dropped out and two-thirds had dropped out on General Eisenhower, you and I wouldn't be here today. And the church won't be here tomorrow if two-thirds of us drop out today. If you love me, do something. Do it. Trust him if you've never trusted him. Join his church if you've never joined his church and help us make a difference in the world. We had about four young couples join this church this morning. What an encouragement. What an affirmation. What a marvelous response. Young people coming to accept the Lord. Whatever your decision, trust Christ or to come join this church or to come in recommitment of your life to say, I'm willing, I'm willing to do whatever I can do to make a difference in the future. I'll be here to greet you. I don't want anybody to leave. It would just be terrible for people coming to Christ to have to make their way past folks that are walking out. I know there are few who have emergency responsibilities. That's understandable. Hunger is not an emergency responsibility at this moment. So we're going to have an invitation, and I'll be here to greet you and to welcome you. Whatever decision God is impressing you to make, God help you to make it. It'll not be long, but it'll be very, very important. Let's stand and let's sing.